June is a very busy month in the legal world because it is when the U.S. Supreme Court hands down the majority of its decisions. June 2022 has indeed been very busy with many consequential decisions that have reversed the long-standing precedent on abortion access, strengthened free exercise of religion claims, and determined that individuals have a right to carry firearms outside the home. They also decided several cases pertaining to the relationship between state, federal, and tribal law, as well as limiting the role of federal courts in immigration proceedings. In the realm of criminal justice, decisions included the clarification that Miranda warnings, you know, the right to remain silent, are not constitutional rights, but rather a prophylactic against violating the constitutional right against self-incrimination, and that defendants are not guaranteed a right to counsel during the appeals process, only the original trial. So if the attorney on appeal is incompetent, then the defendant is held responsible for any errors the incompetent attorney makes and can't use that incompetence as a reason for federal courts to intervene. Now, I'm not a lawyer, and I'm not sure if either what I just said is accurate or what some of what I just said actually means. So luckily, I'm joined by a political science professor who is also a licensed attorney. We can't cover all the momentous decisions of this term, but we'll try to cover the big ones. So let's get started in the politics classroom, recorded on June 30th, 2022. You're listening to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Kate Floros, a political scientist at the University of Illinois at Chicago. You can find me on Twitter and now on TikTok at Dr. Floros. While I usually only release podcast episodes during the fall and spring semesters, the recent decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court have prompted me to dust off my microphone to try to understand the implications of these rulings. To help me do that, I'm thrilled to welcome Professor Evan McKenzie back into the classroom. Professor McKenzie is a professor of political science at UIC and associated faculty at the UIC School of Law. He received his PhD in political science from the University of Southern California and a JD from UCLA Law School. Professor McKenzie, welcome back to the politics classroom. Oh, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So the Supreme Court. So much will change, is changing, has already changed as a function of some of these rulings. But before we dive into the specific cases, I'd like to review the makeup of the Supreme Court and how recent changes in membership have led to many of the decisions that we'll talk about today. So I'm going to do a little short, brief Supreme Court 101. So there are nine justices who sit on the Supreme Court. They are appointed by the president and confirmed in the Senate, and they hold lifetime appointments. They can retire or a vacancy can come about upon the death of a sitting justice. So in January 2016, there were five justices who were considered conservative or right-leaning and four who were considered liberal on the court. In February 2016, conservative justice Antonin Scalia died, leaving a vacancy. Barack Obama was president at the time and nominated Merrick Garland, the current attorney general, to fill the vacancy. The reason that Merrick Garland is the current attorney general and not a justice on the Supreme Court is because the Republican Party controlled the U.S. Senate and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said that since it was an election year, the seat should not be filled until the results of the November election were decided and refused to hold a vote on Garland's nomination. Remember that Scalia died in February before a November election. Donald Trump won the November election and he nominated Neil Gorsuch who was confirmed by the Senate after Republicans deployed the nuclear option to allow them to break the Democratic filibuster with only 50 votes instead of 60. In 2018, Justice Anthony Kennedy, the pivotal swing vote on most 5-4 decisions, retired and Trump nominated Brett Kavanaugh to fill the vacancy after a rancorous confirmation process that included sworn testimony about an alleged sexual assault committed by Kavanaugh as a teenager. Kavanaugh was narrowly confirmed by the Senate. While Kavanaugh was more conservative than the justice he replaced, the 5-4 conservative majority of the court remained until September 2020, when liberal justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died after a long cancer battle. Despite the fact that the 2020 election was less than five weeks, rather than the nine months away, as was the case in 2016, and early voting had already started in many states, 
the Republican-controlled Senate moved hastily to confirm Trump's third Supreme Court nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, tipping the ideological scale 6-3 in favor of conservative justices. I think your summary is very accurate. I would only take issue with one word. Okay. And that is the word conservative. Yes, that was going to be my next question. So the last time you were in the classroom, you argued that it is not accurate to label at least five of the six conservative justices as conservatives. Can you remind us why you think that conservative is an incorrect way to categorize Trump's three nominees plus Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito? Yes. Well, you can call Justice Chief Justice Roberts conservative, and, okay. and that fits within accepted meanings that we've had for the term. And terms like conservative and liberal, they have meanings in a certain historical context. And we think of people like Roberts as being conservative because they, they tend to resist a rapid change. They, they tend to say, let's, let's not make dramatic changes in the powers of government. Let's make, not make dramatic changes in expanding rights. And, and, and I think that is more or less what he is. He's, he's constrained. He believes in judicial restraint, or at least he appeared to until recently. Now, I'm not even sure if that's true of him anymore, but you could have said it about him. But these other five, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Barrett, they're not conservatives. They're reactionaries. They are, they are on the far right of American politics. There's nothing conservative about them. In these decisions that I, I hope you'll talk about today on abortion, on religion, on mm -hmm. guns, and the one that came down this morning on the EPA, but mainly the ones on abortion, religion, and guns, they're just taking existing established law that has been on the books for decades that normally conservatives would preserve because we've gotten accustomed to living according to these laws. They're just taking them and shredding them. They are throwing established precedents into the wastebasket. And they're not just they're not just throwing out the rulings, they're throwing out the tests, the constitutional tests that have been used for decades to make those decisions. These are really radical or I, I would say reactionary attempts to take us back to truthfully the 18th century. Yeah. And and many of the precedents that Thomas and Alito and so forth cite, you know, chapter and verse are from the 1800s or even the 1700s. Yeah. And so I don't, that's not conservatism. This is not conservatism. This is the radical right in control of the U.S. Supreme Court. In the gun case, I saw that they went back to the 1200s about carrying weapons for self-defense, which we'll talk about more in a minute. But I thought, wow, if we're going back to the 1200s, yeah. that's something. Okay. So Justice Stephen Breyer, who is one of the three liberal justices, announced his retirement, which takes effect today, June 30th, probably shortly after we're done recording. And he is being replaced by President Biden's nominee, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who will be the first Black woman to serve on the Supreme Court. How do you think she will compare with the two remaining liberal justices, Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor? Well, I, I think in terms of judicial philosophy and their position sort of on the, what you might call the ideological spectrum, their general view of rights and liberties, their general view of the powers of government, I think they'll be very similar. Uh, the three of them will be very similar. I think Kagan and Sotomayor certainly are very similar. And based on Jackson's previous rulings in her history, uh, I think I would expect much of the same. I think you'll see them, three of them in the minority in a lot of very important decisions in dissent which is what we've seen, you know, this, all these recent decisions, we've got, you know, a whole series of very important decisions in a row. They're all six to three, the same six against the same three. And I, I think that's where Jackson will fit in with those three. In Justice Thomas's majority opinion in the case that expanded the constitutional protection to bear arms outside the home, Thomas said that future courts should uphold gun restrictions only if there is a tradition of such regulation in U.S. history. And many of the decisions of this term seem to rely on this deeply rooted in history idea, which you referenced. It seems like basically any practice before the civil rights era is legitimate, while everything after is not considered deeply rooted. So, you know, before we talk about specifics, what should women, people of color, religious minorities, members of the LGBTQ plus community make of a court that thinks only the decisions that were made by landed white Christian men are the legitimate basis for how the law should be interpreted today? Well, it's very distressing because it should, they should be very, I think, very alarmed for that reason, for the reason that the, this court 
is just embracing this philosophy of originalism, which we can talk about more. But essentially, what that amounts to is a saying that uh, all these constitutional terms, the vague clauses and phrases that we find throughout the Constitution that require interpretation, all of them have to be interpreted in light of what these judges say today was the original understanding of what those words meant. And just to give you a quick example of how that's just a non-standard. Basically, it, it means these terms are going to mean whatever five or six members of the Supreme Court say they mean. That's really mm -hmm. what it amounts to. Because they cherry pick from history. And this is what the worst example is, Thomas, in this Bruin decision, the gun case, okay, where the state of New York put forward numerous, numerous examples throughout American history of states and territories and England and all sorts of regulations that were very similar to the New York state regulation that simply said, if you want a concealed carry permit, carry a gun outside the home, you have to show proper cause, which had been judicially interpreted to mean something more than just a generalized sense of I'd like to have a gun. You need some reason, you need some justification. It's called a may issue standard as opposed to a shall issue standard. Okay. And so the New York in defending this said, well, we, here are many, many examples of comparable laws, you know, that were adopted in the West, even the state of Texas, all over the country throughout the 1800s and going back to England. And uh, Thomas says, oh yeah, he just sets all that aside. Oh no, 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 those are, those are no good. Uh, well, that one, that one was a territory before it was a state. And then these are out, he calls them outliers. They're just outliers. Uh, he decides it's not really a tradition. It's not really a, enough for a tradition. Well, what's enough for a tradition? Right, okay. They showed three states, multiple territories and so forth. And he said, well, that, that's not enough. So this allegedly objective historical test is actually purely subjective in all these decisions with the, in the abortion case, Alito simply rejects all the history that contradicts his version of it. And he adds on an appendix in which he says, here are the places where abortion was a crime in the 1800s. I mean, like what, if he doesn't, if they don't like the history, they say it doesn't count. Right. They cherry pick, they're not historians. They just cherry pick whatever they want. Now, the scariest part, that's the general approach that they took. And it's very, it's, it's basically highly, highly subjective, but I think the worst concern for the LGBTQ population in this country, looking down the road at what's what's coming, mm -hmm. is in Thomas's concurring opinion yeah. in the Dobbs case, which is the abortion case, because he names three specific you know, precedents of the court. He's, he talks about Lawrence versus Texas, which is the, the one that the, where the Supreme Court said you can't just criminalize same-sex sex activities. It was the so-called sodomy law. Right. So that was struck, struck down a sodomy law. Well, Thomas says, oh no, that was wrongly decided. It should be perfectly okay for a state to criminalize, quote, sodomy. So we're talking about making sex acts a crime. Yeah. The Obergefell versus Hodges, he singles that one out too. That's the same-sex marriage case. He's saying that should be overruled, which would mean any state can outlaw same-sex marriage which has been universally accepted in all 50 states since that case was decided. He says it should be reversed. And he even says Griswold versus Connecticut, this is 1965, mm -hmm. should be overturned. Well, that is the case that created the right to privacy. That is where they found the original right to privacy. He is saying that should be repealed in its entirety. And what was the subject of that case? Obtaining contraception by married couples. Mm -hmm. He is saying that states should be able to ban contraception by married couples. That is what is coming. Now, Alito tries to distinguish that by saying, well, you know, abortion is different than some of these other privacy cases because there's this, this whole question of uh, protecting potential life that isn't present in the others, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, Thomas lets the cat out of the bag completely. He says, this is where we're going. Isn't it strange that one of the decisions that was based on this right to privacy is Loving versus Virginia, which allowed interracial marriage, especially considering that he is in an interracial marriage, is Loving versus Virginia somehow different than these other things that somehow privacy in that yeah. case is okay? Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Somehow. He, may, he must have neglected to put that in. I'm yeah. sure he just forgot. Yeah. So yeah, the one that the one that affects his life doesn't get thrown in the basket with all the others. Nice. Yeah. Isn't his argument for why these other cases were wrongly decided is because the 14th Amendment, which is one of the amendments that came together to form the right to privacy, 
it does not deal with substantive due process. The idea that the due process clause of the 14th Amendment only protects that a procedure needs to be followed properly before the state can take away life, liberty, or property, but doesn't provide any actual rights beyond proper procedure. Do I have that understanding right? Yeah, yeah, we have, yes. The constitutional doctrine about uh, the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, which limits the activities of states, the due process clause says that states cannot deny any citizen life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And so the substantive due process argument has always come from answering the question, well, wait a minute, what liberties? I mean, we know what life means, we know what property means. So they can't deprive you of life or property without due process of law, but what liberties? And so historically, and this again, this is this is nothing new. This is this this is this is 120 plus years old. The mm. Supreme Court has been saying for over 120 years that the word liberty in the due process clause includes substantive liberties. So due process of law includes actual substantive liberties, not just how the government does things, but what liberties are protected by the 14th Amendment against state infringement. And that is called substantive due process. Then the Supreme Court has held over and over and over again that all the first eight, basically almost all the first eight amendments to the Bill of Rights, to the Constitution, the first eight amendments of the Bill of Rights are included within the protection of the 14th Amendment. What does that mean? It means the original Bill of Rights only limited the national government. It did not restrict the states at all. But the 14th Amendment passed after the Civil War was expressly intended to limit the ways in which states infringed on the liberties of American citizens. So you know, for a long time, the Supreme Court has said that, no, the Due Process Clause incorporates substantive provisions of the Bill of Rights and potentially other fundamental rights that are not enumerated in the first eight. Because the Ninth Amendment says, right. "Hey, there are other there are other rights that we haven't mentioned." Right now, Alito, in his opinion, he he says, "Well, you know, we have to be very reluctant to recognize rights that are not actually in the text." Because you know, he's he, he just would be terrified if people had rights or liberties that would upset his sense of propriety. Right, and that some landed white men two hundred and some years ago didn't think about. We're all supposed to live according to the notions of the 1800s, except for, by the way, if I could just throw, there's one exception. Okay. okay? In the gun case, in in the uh, Bruin case, Thomas says, well, of course we know that, you know, the term arms in the Second Amendment does not mean just the arms that were around then. That includes today's arms, obviously, (laughs) the guns we have today. But the limitations on on those rights, those, we have to stick with the ones that were in place in 1789. But for the guns, well, that obviously includes today's guns. So you get to have today's guns limited by 1789 gun laws. Yeah. That's basically what he said. And this is what I mean when I'm saying, like, I have a hard time taking these people seriously anymore. And I have always, throughout my teaching constitutional law, which I've been doing since 1990, I've always tried to be respectful of the decisions that I disagree with. I really sincerely have. And these people with these three Trump appointees who have been put on there basically like a guy, like guided missiles, you know, to just say, it is so obvious that this is nothing more than policymaking. This is, this is exactly what they claim the Democrats always do. Mm-hmm. This is pure and simple policymaking. They are on there for a reason. They're on there to change the law. They're on there to block Congress. They're on there to, to you know, to expand the rights of people with extreme religious beliefs, uh, Christians, basically. I mean, they're on there to do these things and they're going to do them and they're, they're not going to admit that they're doing these things. And I just can't, there's a point where I just can't avoid calling this what it is. These, yeah. these, what they're doing here is so flagrantly obvious that I just can't not point it out. And I, I, I feel uncomfortable doing it, but I don't see what, how I can speak honestly about it without yeah. saying this is what's happening. Yeah. Okay. One more preliminary question. There seems to be an excessive reliance on the dictionary. In many of these decisions, a lot of the decisions hinge on how the dictionary or the dictionary at the time the law was passed defined things. Is this what is meant by textualism that what the exact word means and nothing more? I I just don't understand why in political science, 
We do not let our students define terms using the dictionary as the basis for their arguments. How can the Supreme Court do that? Yeah, well, this comes from this notion of what's called textualism. Former Justice Scalia is the person who really tried to elaborate that into a kind of a theory. And so I think he was making an attempt to come up with a real theory with Scalia. I mean, I, I would definitely give him credit for having tried to be consistent throughout his career in this. He was trying to find a way to interpret the meanings of words, but he wanted to constrain the judges of today who would say, well, now I've got a word here and I can use this to mean whatever I want it to mean. So he said, we'll go with the text and we start trying to think about what the word meant at the time. So he used in one of his articles, he used the example of, of cruel and unusual punishment. Okay. So the Eighth Amendment prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. What do those words mean? What does cruel mean? What does unusual mean? And so he said, one way to do this, which he rejected, would be to say, well, whatever they thought was cruel or unusual in 1789 would be what is cruel and unusual today. Well, and then he says, but back in those days, in 1789, they might have used thumb screws and the rack and all sorts of things, the things that would, that would be unthinkable today. So he said, that really is not the way to do it. This is why I'm saying I give him some credit because he said that that really is not what we need to do. We need to think about the terms cruel and unusual and what they mean to us today. And so is the death penalty cruel and unusual punishment to us today? And he tried to understand what that would mean. It would shock people. It'd be a, you, Well, you can look at things like opinion polling and so forth and try to answer that question. So he tried in his, what I always call kind of like smart originalism, where he, he tried to have it make some sense. You know, Now the words don't mean just whatever we want them to mean. They're constrained in terms of the original understanding of what they meant. But that understanding is not confined to the way James Madison saw it. Okay. It would be what might have shocked them versus what might shock us, you see. So he was transplanting words into the present. Now, what these people are doing, these five, because these people, Thomas and Alito, have always been just on the far, far right fringes of American politics. And we know, you know, Clarence Thomas's wife is actually, you know, was heavily involved in the insurrection that tried to overturn our, our system of government and stage a coup. And Alito goes around making speeches to the Federalist Society in which he denounces liberals, you know, just openly. They don't even, these two don't even make an attempt to act like judges. Mm -hmm. The three Trump appointees, they were sent there with basically objectives, you know, in mind. And they all said things in their confirmation hearings that appear they didn't even mean. Yeah. So uh, now when they interpret words, they just find so some way to justify it and pull out a dictionary. Uh, maybe they'll use the third definition or whatever. <laughs> I mean, th to me, they are casting about for some way to make it look like they're not doing what they are in fact doing, which is just imposing their own values on the country. Okay. Thank you. With those preliminaries out of the way, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll jump into some of the major cases of this term in more detail. I'm Professor Floros, and you're listening to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. back to the Politics Classroom. I'm Professor Floros, and I'm joined in the classroom by UIC political science professor Evan McKenzie. So the Supreme Court decision that has gotten the most attention is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. In a 6-3 decision, the majority declared that there is no constitutional right to terminate a pregnancy, which overturned the precedent established in the 1973 case Roe versus Wade, and affirmed in many other decisions, including Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Decisions regarding access to abortion are now in the hands of states, which can ban abortion outright or place stricter restrictions on access than previously allowed. So what reasoning did the majority use to determine that there is no constitutional right to abortion after 49 years of saying that there is a constitutional right? This decision was written by Justice Alito, 
And it's really kind of scathing. I mean, he's, he denounces the Roe versus Wade decision as just, you know, completely unjustifiable, terrible law, bad law. He compares it to Plessy versus Ferguson, the decision that, that established the doctrine of separate but equal being, you know, equal protection of the laws in 1896. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he compares himself in this decision as if he was writing Brown versus the Board of Education. He compares it. I mean, it's just sort of laughable. So this is what we have here is the first decision that I'm aware of uh, in which the Supreme Court took away from American citizens a, a major constitutional right. Uh, I, I, I didn't think of any, any others of that has even happened, although they've been eroded, you know, like the sure. rights of the accused have been seriously eroded. But to just strip away in its entirety, an entire constitutional right is unprecedented. Well, so basically he goes at it like this. He says, Roe was wrongly decided. Planned Parenthood versus Casey, 1992, wrongly decided. Uh, now, let me just point something out, okay? Sure. Roe versus Wade, the decision itself, was written by Harry Blackman. Harry Blackman was a Republican. <laughs> he was appointed to the bench by Richard Nixon. This is the wrongly decided, wacky decision that's so wrong. <laughs> Harry Blackman was the general counsel for the Mayo Clinic. He knew a few things about medicine, mm-hmm. which Alito does not know. Right. Okay. Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the majority opinion was written by Anthony Kennedy, Sandra Day O'Connor, and David Souter. All three of them, Republicans, hmm. appointed to, yeah, I mean, we're talking about Reagan uh, appointees and Bush 41 appointees. All this law that is being rejected, it right. was all written by Republicans. So basically, he says, he goes as follows. He says that there are two possible grounds for finding a right to abortion. One, which was in Roe versus Wade in 73, that is the right to privacy. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about where that comes from, but it's basically derived from the Ninth Amendment and other amendments. It's a right to privacy that encompasses all these things we, we've talked, you know, contraception, the same-sex marriage is partly grounded in that, and protection against the sodomy laws that criminalize people's sexual conduct, etc. So that's, that's where Roe came from, the right to privacy. But when a Planned Parenthood Heard versus Casey came along in 1992, they refounded the right to abortion in the 14th Amendment due process clause itself. They said it's a, it's a fundamental right that is part of the 14th Amendment. And so there were two separate foundations in the law for the right to obtain an abortion. And then he proceeds to strike down both of them and okay. says, well, it's not part of any right to privacy. It's different. And that's where he distinguishes these other things like contraception. And he says, well, we're not, I'm not really talking about that because in this case, he says, you've got this issue of critical moral question, as he calls it, involving the potential life uh, of the unborn human being as the Mississippi law calls it. So he says, this is different, but he says, it, this, there, there's no, this is not covered by any right to privacy. And he throws that all out. Then he turns to Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is the more recent precedent from 92. And he says here, this is, goes too far. Uh, whatever rights you might have, whatever substantive due process rights you might have, abortion is definitely not one of them. There's no right to abortion either under the 14th Amendment due process clause or under a right to privacy founded in the Ninth Amendment and portions of other amendments. It's just simply not there. It's never been there. And this is where he uses history. He goes back and, and he lists in an appendix all the different state laws from the 1800s mm-hmm. that, in his view, criminalized abortion. And again, in opposing the Mississippi law, the uh, attorneys basically who are in favor of abortion rights, to, to simplify it, cite all kinds of, of historical precedent whereby abortions were allowed, they were not criminalized in these, this jurisdiction or that jurisdiction. And again, he just disregards it. Mm. it this, this is what they do with their historical analysis. If you put forward uh, examples that support the, the opposite position, uh, Alito, Thomas, et cetera, they just say, well, that, that's, that's just, uh, that's not enough. That doesn't establish a tradition, and they they just argue it away, and so you end up with the, all these little, you know, nuanced arguments. But the bigger issue here is really he's saying that today's right to abortion is invalid because it's not within the understanding of the Fourteenth Amendment or the previous amendments that were in place in previous centuries. So wait, because the crafters of the Fourteenth Amendment couldn't possibly have been thinking that it applied to abortion, it yes. doesn't apply to abortion, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> but the exact same argument could be made that I am sure that the crafters of the 14th Amendment would not have been in favor of allowing same-sex sexual contact either. 
right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why, though, no, that's the point. Yeah. That despite the fact that he says, well, we're only talking about abortion here. Yeah, in this case. But Thomas, you know, lets the cat out of the bag because right. he says it correctly. He's absolutely right. Every word, practically, of Alito's opinion could just as easily be used to strike down uh, the right of married people to get contraception, same-sex marriage, or sodomy laws. It could, it, you could just use the same logic. It's all the same thing. All he's going to do is say, well, it wasn't contemplated at the time they wrote it. And here, here's an interesting thing. It has been pointed out that when the 14th Amendment was written, when it was adopted, after the Civil War, it was very much in the minds of the people who ratified the 14th Amendment that, for example, women who had been enslaved were forced to bear children against their will. Mm -hmm. They had no bodily autonomy. So for him to say that the 14th Amendment does not encompass these privacy rights and bodily autonomy, personal choices and reproductive choice, excuse me, mm -hmm. it most certainly did. I mean, it was very much in the minds of people who wrote the 14th Amendment. They were protecting women and, and men, for that matter, against having their bodily autonomy invaded and their privacy invaded because that is exactly what slavery included. Yeah. So his argument is historically inaccurate. And this has been pointed out at some length. But, you know, again, it doesn't make any difference mm -hmm. because if they don't want to hear, you know, the historical argument, they just say it doesn't count. And that's that. So you, you mentioned the potential life of the fetus or the human yes. being as Mississippi law states. Is there some notion that the fetus has 14th Amendment rights to life too? Is that part of this or that's not articulated in no. this decision? No, that's not articulated in this okay. decision. The state interest that is being protected here by these laws, these anti-abortion laws, is the uh, state's interest in the protection of what Mississippi calls unborn human life and what Planned Parenthood versus Casey and Roe versus Wade called potential life. So they, they avoided the question of where does life begin by mm -hmm. calling it potential life. And they said, it's okay for states. States have a legitimate interest in the protection of potential life. And so now essentially they're saying that is a legitimate interest. Now that the current law now is, that is still a legitimate interest. And there's no other interest because the other interest in Casey and in Roe was the woman's constitutional right to her own autonomy, her own reproductive choice. That right no longer exists. It is gone. There is only one interest involved here. It is the state's. There is no countervailing interest. And so the test that is now going to be used to judge abortion laws is what's called the rational basis test. Is the law rationally related to any legitimate government objective? It is the lowest test of constitutionality that we have. And virtually every law passes that test. That's the test that we use for deciding whether a parking law is constitutional or not. If, except, government interests in protecting actual life from gun violence. <laughs> yes. Right? I mean, right. I thought if the state had an interest, then they could regulate constitutional rights. So how is it that they can do that in this case, but state interest doesn't matter in limiting the rights of people to carry guns outside their home, in the street, etc.? Because the way they treat the gun laws is completely different. They give them a very special treatment in which all this means and conversation has now been thrown completely out entirely. So hypocrisy is a-okay. Different standards for different constitutionally protected rights is legitimate. As of now, there is no federal constitutional right to obtain an abortion. There is nothing to balance it with because it's gone. It's gone. There is no federal right to obtain abortion anymore. It has been erased entirely. There's nothing to balance it against. There is only a state interest in protecting what they have previously called a potential life, but which I think in this court, they'll probably just accept, they just seem to accept the unborn human life version, but that is a legitimate state interest. And so states can pass any law they want to advance that interest as long as it bears some rational relation to protecting fetal life, which means, and as the dissent says, they can ban abortion from the moment of fertilization. In all cases, they can ban abortion with no exception for the life or health of the mother. They can ban abortion in the case of ectopic pregnancies, rape, incest. They, they can do whatever they want. 
Now, there's another interest here, which was recognized in Roe, which was the state's interest in protecting the health and life of the mother. And so the only thing that comes to me is that if laws are passed where states like, say, Mississippi or Missouri say that you can't obtain an abortion at all, cannot be challenged on the grounds that they have trampled all over a woman's interest in protecting her own life, her own interest. The problem is this is an interest balancing question Mm -hmm. that they might just leave to state legislatures and say, look, we told you that there's no federal right to an abortion in any case, and it's gone. You know, I'm sure there will be attempts by Planned Parenthood, et cetera, to safeguard the health and life of mothers. But I really feel that at this point, it's going to be a tremendous uphill battle. This court is not going to recognize, I think, any part of a right to abortion at all. So the state's interest in protecting a potential life weighs more heavily than a woman's interest in remaining alive. Yeah, I think the way I'm reading this, uh-huh. and this is the way this is the way the dissent reads it. If a state balances it off that way, if the state of Mississippi, for example, says, yeah, well, we know that sometimes mother's health and life could be at risk, but we choose in all cases to protect the life of the fetus. If that is what they choose to do, I think there's no constitutional barrier to them doing that. So the 14th Amendment's protection of the due process of life liberty and property that can't be taken away would not come into play there if it's the mother's life? Isn't that protected by the 14th Amendment that you can't have laws that deny a woman her life? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you look at the dis- at the dissent, I think this is what they are concerned about. As things stand right now, states can completely ban abortion, even if it is viewed as necessary to save the life of the mother. I think that is the concern. And, you know, many state legislators have had this question put to them and they have said publicly, well, you know, in my view, the fetal life is the only consideration that we're going to take into account. And if there's going to be a carve out for abortions that are necessary to protect the life or health of the mother, they're going to have to be found someplace other than in a constitutional right to abortion because that is gone. Yeah, but it could be found in the protection of life can't be infringed without due process of the law. It occurs to me you could do something like that. It would make sense Yeah. to try that. It seems like a lot of hoops to jump through. So let's take another break. I'm Professor Floros, and you're listening to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. Welcome back to the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Floros, and I'm speaking with UIC political science professor and attorney, Evan McKenzie. So in a concurring opinion, Kavanaugh said, you know, this doesn't threaten or cast doubt on these other rights that we've been talking about. And he also said that other questions that may arise are also not in doubt, like whether or not states can prevent their residents from crossing state boundaries to get an abortion or prosecute those who received an abortion before this Dobbs decision, that the Dobbs decision does not allow either of those things, either to prosecute residents who's crossed state boundaries to get an abortion or to prosecute those who have received an abortion before Dobbs. We're already seeing states trying to come up with ways to criminalize leaving the state to get an abortion. Mm-hmm. Right. Does that, what, what do you think about challenges to those kinds of laws given this court? Yes. Well, now this is going to be a complicated area because there is a concept of privileges and immunities. This is also part of the 14th Amendment, but there's 
a privileges and immunities clause where states can't infringe on the privileges or immunities of American citizens. Now, this is this has had very limited utility since the 1800s when the Supreme Court narrowed it in the thing called the slaughterhouse cases. But without getting too technical, we do have a right of movement. That is, the Supreme Court has held that we have a right to go between states, you know, to move back and forth. And if states try to criminalize an abortion that happens in another state or leaving the state to obtain an abortion, this is going to bring other legal doctrines into play. It also could involve statutes because it's conceivable that there could be either executive orders or maybe even laws passed that could prohibit states from doing that. And then we're going to get into a federalism questions, you know, the powers of the federal government versus the states. The greater concern, I don't think states are going to be able to do that. I mean, I don't think that that states will constitutionally be able to prohibit people from leaving the state to obtain an abortion elsewhere. I do, I, I do not believe they can do that because it would be happening outside their jurisdiction. But there's another concern, which is Congress passing a, basically a national abortion ban. And you know the, the Republican Party is trying desperately to downplay this mm-hmm. because they're terrified that particularly young people will wake up and realize that if Republicans take over both houses of Congress and then the presidency, in fact, even if they just take over both houses of Congress, they're going to pass a national abortion ban. Yeah. It's very likely that they will. And blow up the filibuster in the Senate to do it? Oh, absolutely. I think they will. I okay. mean, it's certainly very likely that they will. I, I, I think that that's going to happen as soon as, <laughs> as, soon as uh, Republicans get control of both houses of Congress and the presidency, they're going to blow up the filibuster. Yeah. So, you know, you, we could very easily be just a couple of years away you know, two years, two and a half years away from a national ban on abortion. If they take Congress, the only thing standing in their way for the next two years would be Joe Biden. And then, uh, you know, if they can, if they win the presidency, we have President DeSantis or whatever, I think very, yeah, absolutely. They'll, there'll be a national ban. And then that does away with that whole movement between state lines. They'll, can one state mm-hmm. criminalize it? It won't matter. It'll be, they'll make the abortions illegal nationwide. But wouldn't that be a federalism thing? I mean, if the Supreme Court said this should be decided by the states, will they then say, oh, but now there's a federal law. I guess that's okay. The states don't get to decide anymore? Well, they do. A state can have any law they want. They could still have any law. No, it's not a federalism problem because uh, the state, the state of Illinois can say, well, we're not going to criminalize abortion. And the federal government would say, fine, don't. But it's going to be federal crime. You don't have to prosecute it if you don't want to. In other words, oh. you know, maybe Iowa makes it a crime to get an abortion, but Illinois doesn't. Fine. That's that's fine. The states, they're free to not make it a crime under state law. But we could still have a federal statute banning abortions. But that wouldn't be enforced in Illinois. Yes, it certainly would. It would be enforced everywhere in the entire United States, like all federal laws are. So who would arrest them? Like the, the FBI? FBI? The FBI, yeah. Let's not borrow trouble. Hopefully in two years, we won't have to have this conversation, but okay. Well, I just say this because, you know, uh, often, particularly young people like to sit out these midterm elections, right. you know, and, and they don't, and state, state elections, mm-hmm. state legislature. Why should I vote in the state election? Why should I do this? Why should I do that? And what has happened here is that abortion laws are going to be made by state legislators. Mm-hmm. That's the, the way it is. And they're going to be able to make basically any law they want. So in at least 22 states within a few days, it's already, I think, 14 now and another eight at the end of the, in another month, 22 states, it's going to be illegal. And that's because of state legislatures. And, you know, and so with young people, we always try to get them to understand this over their students. And it's very, very hard. I mean, I can remember in the 2016 election having long conversations with students who said, you know, I don't like Hillary Clinton. I, I don't like her. I want to feel good when I cast my vote. So I'm going to vote for Jill Stein. And I'd say, do you understand what's going to happen if Hillary Clinton loses and Donald Trump wins? Do you understand what's going to happen to the Supreme Court? And they say, I don't care about the Supreme Court. <laughs> so, and I, I mean, I had those conversations yeah. with people, yeah, including, including young women whose lives stand to be affected. If they, if they live in Texas or Georgia or one of these other states, their lives are directly affected by that. And mm-hmm. so I wonder if they, you know, if they have reflected back on this and if they now understand why it makes a difference that it's a Democrat versus a Republican in terms of the composition of the courts. A couple more things about abortion before we move on. One, 
Chief Justice Roberts concurred with the decision in Dobbs, but not the opinion, because he just wanted to uphold Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban, which was which was what the Dobbs case was all about, rather than throw out the constitutionally protected right to abortion. He couldn't get anybody else to go along with that idea. Does the fact that he even articulated this position matter at all? No. Okay. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Because now it could have, if he had been the fifth vote, then it would matter because then you'd have uh, a majority opinion that would be an outcome. The, the Mississippi statute is upheld, but you wouldn't know why. You'd have four votes on one ground and the fifth vote from a different. But there are five grounds, a majority of yeah. five. Okay to overturn Roe. So his sixth vote, it doesn't make any difference. It's just his his viewpoint on the matter is different than theirs. And uh, that's why I say, you know, you can make an argument. He's a, he's a bit closer to what we used to call a conservative because he's saying, well, as you said earlier, this is a precedent. We have organized our lives around the existence of a right to a, have an abortion since 1973. Yeah. This is so shocking you know and he at because he still has some conservative sentiments even though i'm sure you know he thinks roe is wrong he respects the precedent and he said that in his confirmation hearings and he in true to his word he did respect the yeah. precedent but the other uh five justices now you know the three that we've really focused on are the trump appointees and they just flat out misrepresented their intentions in their confirmation hearings because you know we've all seen the quotations of them saying oh no it's a you know, I respect the law. It's the law of the land, and I respect the law of the land. It's an established precedent. It's a, you know this that and and they just you know immediately just you know went contrary to their own stated intentions. Apparently, yeah. that's the way it looks. Okay, so usually in a dissenting opinion, the last line is "I respectfully dissent" or "We respectfully dissent." In the Dobbs decision, the three dissenting justices just dissented. They did not respectfully dissent. They just dissented. So how much bad blood has this decision caused among the justices? And does that even matter? This is the most acrimonious court we I've seen in my lifetime. And, you know, I was around in college during the years of the Warren Court, you know, when there was a lot of contention going on. But this is personally nasty. And it isn't just this one. It comes up in these other recent opinions as well, where you see just evidence of personal nastiness between them, like real bitter, hard feelings about it. And I can't imagine what it is like for Roberts to preside over their uh, <laughs> conferences. Yeah. Scalia, you know, who was very conservative and so forth, was the closest of friends with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They were, and they both said it, yeah. they were ideological opposites. And they absolutely loved each other. They went on vacation together. They rode an elephant together. They have all these stories. They delighted in each other's company, even though they disagreed on things. And that's the way things are supposed to be. You know, it's the way it is with lawyers generally. You know, when I was practicing law, I had bitter courtroom battles with, with people like when I was a prosecutor and a bitter controversy with public defenders and literally joke and laugh with them afterward and go, you know, have lunch together or something after the case was over. And you could still be colleagues. And that seems really to have just gone out the window with this court. There's a lack of respect and a lack of comedy and just sort of personal nastiness coming through that is really disturbing. Okay, last abortion question. So there was a lot of controversy in late summer last year after Texas passed SB 8 that was the six-week ban on abortion and the vigilante enforcement of that law. The Supreme Court allowed that law to go into effect. And we talked about this the last time you were in the classroom about why this was different than what they normally do in cases like this. But now that Roe and Casey have been overturned, the six-week ban is perfectly fine constitutionally. Is the vigilante part of that law under scrutiny anywhere? Or is that continue to be the legal remedy to enforce the six-week ban in Texas? 
Well, it's certainly still in force and there's no reason they can't do it. But remember why they did that. Right. So they couldn't challenge it in court. Yeah, they did it that way because Roe versus Wade is still on books and there, and there's limits to what the state can do right. because Roe versus Wade prohibits the government from doing certain things. So they basically privatized it and they tried to privatize the enforcement in a way there was nothing the courts could do about it. And so that's still there. But now Texas and all these states are just going to, we're talking about flat out yeah. criminalizing abortion. They don't need to worry about vigilantes and bounty hunters. They're just going to make it a crime. Yeah. You know, they're just going to make it a crime. And, and, and the question then is like, how do you enforce it? How will they determine whether a woman has, you know, had an abortion or not? Uh, there's all this concern about online pregnancy or period trackers, right. and this sort of thing. Like, how intrusive is this going to get? And, you know, we don't know, but there aren't any real limits at this point to what they can do. So, you know, we'll see uh, down the road with things like the life of the mother, et cetera, what will get challenged, what enforcement procedures will come about, what about HIPAA violations, and on and on mm-hmm. and on. Uh, what will hospital practices look like? Yeah. Because if doctors are going to be prosecuted and hospitals are worried about prosecution and, and losing their licenses, et cetera, um, what's going to happen? What's going to happen when women have to have abortions because they have ectopic pregnancies or some other medical condition? And the hospital says, well, you know, we think we need to wait until it's actually a life threatening emergency. Yeah. That the woman crashes. Yes, exactly. This is the problem with judicial decisions generally. This is really a, a problem when they make uh, a decision that has far-reaching ramifications. Now, when they expanded liberties, remember, you know, when they, uh, Miranda, when they created the, the Miranda rule, there are all these people said, oh, this is going to be a disaster. The police won't be able to get any more confessions. And we know that all went right out the window. I mean, the police adapted to Miranda and they've been getting confessions ever since. And there's never a problem in getting confessions. That turned out not to be true. But what we're talking about here, yeah. these really do seem to be realistic concerns for the ability of women to just to protect their health. Yeah. Okay. I guess I was, I was more curious about the vigilante enforcement. So maybe we'll just have to wait until another vigilante enforcement mechanism is put into some other law to see if you can privatize enforcement of law. So hopefully we don't have to deal with that in the future, but we'll come back and talk about it when we do. There's so much more to talk about with Professor McKenzie. Unfortunately, we've run out of time for this episode, but join me next week in the politics classroom when Professor McKenzie is back to talk about other consequential Supreme Court decisions, including those involving religion, guns, and federal regulation. I'm Professor Floros. Find me on Twitter and TikTok at Dr. Floros. You can also check out further reading at thepoliticsclassroom.org. Until next week, that's all I've got. Class dismissed.